Um, for those of you who have a little bit more of a Hebraic bend to things, sort of more of a deep root, if you will, in that sense, I challenge you to look at John on your own time as a traditional Haggadah, because it's one of the fun things about the Gospel of John in that perspective. All of the things that lead up to Pesach, to Passover, all in essence kind of make their way into this, uh, such, this uh, situation, which is part of the fun. Um, you know, you, like there are things like, for instance, and it's important to note, this is, you know, I get reminded of all these things when we go through a book a week because you get that themes and the richness of that. But part of it is, for instance, to prepare a house for Passover, one of the first things you must do uh, before to even qualify it is chametz. And chametz is the uh, driving out of the leaven because you can't celebrate Passover in a house that has any leaven at all. And it's interesting to note, unique to the Gospel of John, for instance, who gives us this, that he does it in the second chapter right before, I mean, it's just right after he actually turns water into wine, which is another thing he's preparing of the wine. Uh, and then there's the lighting of the candles that starts the whole ceremony, and that's chapter 1. And then there's this inviting of relatives, and then there is the um, bread that you prepare, and of course Jesus calls himself the bread of life. And it's just every, and then of course, it's just beautiful how, how the whole thing sort of falls into place. Uh, all of that said, we are in a very uh, heavy, heavy text. And of course, we're removed from it. It isn't like we're in a situation now where we're kind of going, oh, there I am in the midst of it, but we should, if we were to find ourselves in this text, and we were actually there, this would be very, very heavy to swallow. So we're in chapter 14, verse 1. And my intention isn't to go very far, to go six verses, but it, oh, it should be more than enough for what we're um, dealing with here. So let me do that again. So read the first six verses with me, if you would, please. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples, and we'll even get more specific here in a moment. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to where myself, to myself, that where I am you may be also. And where I go you know, and the way you know. Then Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going, or how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Will you please pray with me? Still us, God. Settle our hearts and our minds to hear you, to know you to want you more. Today, Lord, in this room, magnificently minister. You know the dust under every one of our shoes. You know the vapor in every breath, every hair on our head, every freckle on our bodies, everything that would make us smile, everything that would grieve our hearts. And today, here in this room, as you've counted every breath, collected every tear in a bottle, and you know every atom and have them cataloged. God, yet in all of that, we desire to know you better. This finite mind to comprehend infinity. And Lord, I know for some of us, we may be familiar with this text. Matter of fact, familiar with it in such a way that perhaps it'd be easy to kind of put ourselves on autopilot instead of hear from you specifically what it is you wish to speak to us today. And here we are, God. We've gathered in this warm room, 
on this frigid day outside where the sun in essence appears to lie to us. And yet here we are, Lord, in this warm room, safe, not in any way assuming that there is a threat for us to say yes to you or to follow you. There couldn't be a safer place for us to just follow you completely. And yet, Lord, we are threatened. We are threatened by our own comfort, by the rituals and ruts and routines that now have become, in essence, addictions of methodology that may keep us, Lord, from being fully following you like we should. So today, Lord, I pray that you would, through your great grace and through your Holy Spirit, grab your defibrillators, yell clear, and press them upon our spirit today. And in this, Lord, may your word burst open and come alive. Lord, so my prayer is that you would immerse me in your Holy Spirit, that we would all see you, that you would come upon me to do through me what only you can do. Speak fluent us, a word or many, to each of us, individually and corporately as a family. Draw us in now, I pray, and captivate us. And may your word profoundly transform us here. So we commit this time to you, every minute of it. it. And if there be any who have yet to know you as Lord and Savior, let this be the day of their salvation. As we commit this to you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. I would say today, as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true, because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible have the final say. When we read this, of course, we start chapter 14. And this is the danger of reading a biblical text where someone is kind enough, the Masoretes, we can thank them for that, of actually giving us chapters. It's extremely helpful because I was able to say, turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 14. And you were able to turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 14, or at least look in your phones till you found John and then prayed for 14. But the danger in that, of course, is it assumes then that there must be some new frame of thought. That somehow it's sort of like every chapter puts Jesus in a new location. It's sort of like a new episode. You know, it's sort of like the, the sitcom of Jesus. And now we're in the 14th, what do we call it? The 14th episode, series four, because it's the Gospel of John. So Jesus starts with this, we'll let you not your heart be troubled. And of course, we just assume what Jesus is doing is sort of spraying a blanket comfort over any of us under any circumstance where we may be, in essence, comforted or need of that comfort. However, it's even infinitely more profound if we actually go back a few verses to see who in the world he's speaking to and why. So do this for a moment. Go back in John chapter 13 to verse 33. This is what Jesus is saying, and I remind you, this is Pesach, this is the Passover, and there Jesus has washed his disciples' feet, he has actually eaten the meal now, and we are at the end of that. At this particular moment, by the way, Judas has now left. Jesus has openly declared that one of them will outright betray him. However, he has also said, the other Gospels tell us, that all of them will fail before the night is done. So start with that information to swallow. On the day of great deliverance, on the day that we celebrate, in this case, roughly 1,400 plus years before this, the event from where Jesus is to when the the Passover, the original Exodus 12 Passover took place, roughly 1,500 years if we're going to just be really rough in general. That Jesus is speaking about a time where God has delivered us out of the hand of bondage from what we understood, the birthing crucible of Israel. 
And we are celebrating. The lines for us to draw are easy and the dots are easy to connect because our natural assumption is Rome. That's our Egypt of the day. And they are very much bullies as we would understand bullies today. Only they were organized and called the government. I don't go anywhere dangerous with that right now. And so that was our natural assumption. And to make it worse, Italy was calling itself the eternal empire. It wasn't the first time someone said that. Do you know who said that before that? Egypt. Egypt actually called themselves the eternal empire. And it was interesting as testimony that by the time that we're sitting in a Passover room with Jesus in an upper room, Egypt is of no consequence. Though at the time it would have seemed invincible and immortal. And to make it even worse, they were horribly spiritual. So you would have thought, with all the supernatural things taking place, that they had a little bit of bite to their bark. Well, now we're looking at Rome. It is infinitely less spiritual, if you will, although they were worship of all kinds of gods, but less manifestations, if you will. I mean, we don't find when Jesus kind of goes against Rome, though he doesn't necessarily go against Rome, to be honest. He actually seems to befriend the Gentiles, open to forgiving them. That we don't see there to be any showdowns among the priests of Rome against Jesus. However, it would be very easy dots to connect. But there is an eternal problem. And the eternal problem will never be Rome. And the eternal problem will never be Egypt. The eternal problem is sin. You see, there were a whole lot of people that had problems with it before Egypt ever came. And there are a whole lot more people that have problems with it ever since. The same could be said of Italy, or Rome, if you wish. And Jesus came to conquer, and this is what I've learned about God, is man does really great temporary things, but God functions on the eternal. When he does something, he's so good with permanence. And I like this. I could say it this way. Man could kick up a lot of dust, but only God can move mountains. So Jesus is speaking at this celebration because he knows he is going to battle against the greatest foe, and that's sin and our guilt. It doesn't matter where you've come from. If we think about it, by this point, less than 0.0000000001% of the people have actually had to struggle with the Roman Empire or with the Egyptian empires in their days of all the mankind that have ever lived. But 100% of the people have had to struggle with sin. And have found themselves, as Jesus says, whoever sins is a slave to it. So Jesus is going to battle, knowing full well the victory, but it's not a very pleasant route there. And he turns to them and says in John 13:33, by way of review and context, little children, an interesting text. Because what we'll find in chapter 14 is Jesus will say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And Jesus is calling his disciples little children. I shall be with you a while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Stop. Put that information in your operating system for a moment. Luke would tell us in Luke 5.11 that the, the, the fishermen, for instance, forsook all to follow Jesus. It wasn't like they kind of kept their hedge funds and their 501Ks or whatever it was uh, in sort of somewhere in the back 
and just sort of waited. They had something to fall back on. They put every egg in Jesus' basket. Which, up to this point, made perfect sense because nobody seemed to be infinitely almighty like Jesus is. Let's just be honest. He could raise the dead. He could heal the sick. Even all the demon world seemed to bow down before him. So this has been fine and dandy until Jesus looks and he goes, I'm leaving. Isn't that what he's saying? What do you do with that information? You've given your whole life to follow someone. There's no part of your life that has not only been affected, but been completely transformed by this choice you've made to follow him. And now, he says, I'm going. And what's even worse is you can't come with. It doesn't matter where he's going. The fact that he says, I can't come with, I blow a fuse. That's just the way it works. Because then infinitely now, at a moment like this, my mind floods with, well then, what do I do? And there's two aspects of it. There is the immediate crisis of, well, who in the world am I without you? What do I do now? And then there's, well, what about the future? Every decision I make, I mean, my whole life has been now, in essence, the bullet's been in the chamber for my, the rest of my life. I'm on a trajectory, and the entire thing got on a head-on collision because of one statement that he makes here. And just to make it more fun, then he turns in verse 34, and he says, I have a new commandment for you. You need to love one another. And what's going to be clear and obvious is, at least in Simon Peter's case, he doesn't hear this at all because he is still already spinning out of control. Both of his wings and engines have fallen off the plane of Simon Peter the moment Jesus says, I'm leaving. And at that point, he's... And he's going, you need to love one another. He can't even hear that at that moment. He's going to go right back to this point. But he's looking at them and going, look at You want to know what to do right now? I need you to love one another. By this, all will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Verse 36, Simon Peter is going to pipe up. And I love Simon Peter. He is the drummer of the group, hands down. Now, Daniel, by the way, let me just say Daniel's a freak. And I mean that in the best possible way because I don't know how in the world he could be a drummer. He knows how to hold his tongue. I've never had to consider the fact that he's probably got himself in tremendous trouble. Traditionally, the stereotype for a drummer is even your great Christian drummers, you're thinking he's actually the first person that could probably get arrested. Anyways, all of that said, and Simon Peter's that guy. He's the one guy that everyone's thinking it in the room, but he says it. He's the one guy that actually doesn't have the filter most of us do. Now, I can tell you stories about drummers that I've worked with, but I can tell you, give you an idea, just a rough paraphrase. And again, I want to get back into the text, but it just, this is where my mind goes at a moment like this. We had this amazing drummer, super gifted guy named Ryan, and he was so good. But he, the moment he ever started with, ah, sick, you just knew you were in trouble. That was the warning, because the moment those words came out, the next thing that came out of his mouth was never going to be good. It was what people may have been thinking in one manner or another, but Asik meant that the gates were open and it was falling out of his mouth. Now Jesus says, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And apparently in Ryan's case, his heart filled up quick and it spilled out quicker. quicker. And we were in one of those churches where it just seemed like there was a box of tissues every fifth seat. And there were maybe a thousand seats in the room. We were about to perform there that night. And he comes in and the first thing he says, oh, sick, a lot of people crying in your church. That's the kind of idea. And you're like, oh, Ryan. Those, the, there was a family that had actually given us the blessing of a house, but they had two basset hounds that had a skin disease. Have you ever smelled a basset hound with a skin disease? 
Trust me, it's not the wages of sin, but it's in there somewhere. And they had removed the basset hounds, but not the beds, nor the smell. So we walk into this place. Praise the Lord, they've given us a house to stay in. And of course, the, there goes the sick. Oh, sick. You just let your dogs pee at will. Oh, that is not a good moment. Now, here's the great part about it. There are times, though, where everyone's a little too afraid to say something, and a Simon Peter comes in really handy. And here's one of those moments. I know, again, I remind you, Jesus has said, I'm leaving, and where I'm going, you can't come. I am not allowing you to follow me here. Up to this point, he's like, follow me. Follow me to the leper. Follow me to the dead child. Follow me to the centurion. Follow me to the hemorrhaging woman. Follow me to the religious leader, Yerus' daughter. Follow me up the hill for three of you. But you can't follow me here. And Simon Peter says, Lord, where are you going? Now, why do you think Simon Peter asked that? If, you go, if I were to say to my two children, I'm going someplace and you really just can't come, and they ask, where are you going? Why do you think they're asking? More than likely, we're going to run into them some other way. Now, note in this verse 36 that he's not called Simon and he's not called Peter. He's called Simon Peter. This is key. Man, I see this happens to every one of us in one way or another. Simon, Shimon, God has heard, he has heard. However, the term often is used as an insult even in certain places of slang today. It's a variation of the term, but it means to be unstable. But Petras was the name Jesus gave to him. It means rocky, in essence. You. In essence, it means solid. So imagine it's like unstable, and he's going to graduate to something. He goes, look, you're going to be called Simon. Right now, that's what they call you. But I'm going to, you're going to be called Peter. It turns out, by the way, it isn't like his nickname. But it's actually his surname. Jesus surnamed Simon. But somewhere in between Simon becoming Peter, Simon becomes Simon Peter. Might I say that happens to every one of us? You've accepted the gift of Jesus Christ if you have. He died on the cross for your sins. He offers you a brand new life because whoever's in Christ is a new creation. And what happens is somewhere in that, if you've said yes, and praise God, he gives us the dignity of choice. He's risen and he said, now, will you accept this gift? I've paid the bill for your guilt. I've paid for all the crimes of your heart. Accept that gift and let me be the Lord of your life. And so we've said yes. And with that, then Jesus says, I have this whole new you. You're like, great. That's going to be a blessing instead of a curse. That's going to be a benefit instead of a challenge. But somewhere in between that person God has in his mind and the person you are at the moment, you're the thing in between. And might I say, in Simon's case, every day he's a little less Simon and he's a little more Peter. But unfortunately, unlike some of us, Peter's really good at the tango, which has some steps forward, or the cha-cha, where there's some steps forward and some steps backwards. You kind of know that. And you may have, like, you know, let's face it, in the beginning of it all, there's nasty me, and I said yes to Jesus, and at the end of it all is someone who looks like him. But in between, there's this more Jesus, less me, more Jesus, less me, and then I step back, and there's a whole lot of me for a moment, and it's usually a moment that involves fear or worry or something that I've grabbed a hold of and thought was my responsibility instead of his. And in a moment like that, strangely enough, I become less like Jesus and I become more like the person I was. 
at this moment, and I love this, Jesus is saying, I'm leaving. And he goes, you should not expect Peter at this moment. You should expect Simon Peter. There are certain situations. I mean, I've been married to the same beautiful woman for 28 years. Now, I know there's a Suzanne, and then there's the super Christian Suzanne. And I know there are going to be certain circumstances that are not going to bring out the super Christian Suzanne. She knows that in my life. And I do, well, if I can get, steer her away from those circumstances, I will. If I can't steer her away from those circumstances, I leave the room if I can. And she would do wise to do the same. In this moment, Simon Peter has crept up. A whole lot of Simon has jumped into Peter. This is where you're going. Jesus said, it's not important where I'm going right now. You just need to know you can't come. Where I'm going, you can't follow me now. But let me comfort you with this. You shall follow me afterward. Where I'm going right now, you believe me, you really don't want to come with me right now. But you will in a time. And when you are in time, don't worry. You'll be able to go then. Verse 37. I love the fact that you notice it just as Peter said. Why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. That sounds more Simon than Peter, doesn't it? But this is what a rock looks like. The unfortunate part is, and I believe Peter believed this wholeheartedly, he had the conviction of Peter, but he had the strength of Simon. And in a moment like that, would you be blessed if you were Jesus by seeing somebody that really genuinely believed with all their heart? No, I'm going to be that guy. I am going to be that guy for you. I know you've said everybody is going to bail on you tonight. And, you, and here's the problem. Jesus said that's because it's in Scripture. And if it's in Scripture, the script is written. You can't, this is not up for revision. Let me say that again. If it's in Scripture, the script is written. You can't. It's not open for revision. You're like, well, I don't like what the Scripture says. No person in their right mind in their natural self, should ever love what the Scripture says because it tells you to die to yourself. There's no part of your flesh that likes that. But that doesn't mean it's not true. Peter says, look it. Why? Why can't I go with you? Come on. I'm the rock. You're rocky. You know better. I'll lay out my life for you tonight. And Jesus answers him, will you really? Most assuredly. What's even worse is, you know how that is in the Greek? Amen, amen. Amen, amen. I'm going to tell you this. Before the rooster crows, you will have actually denied that you even know me. I mean, here you are saying you're willing to die for me tonight. Boy, you're going to wish you were dead after this one. What if Jesus were to look at you in the face and to tell you about your biggest fall, your biggest failure? Where would you go? Where would you go in your heart? Where would you go in your mind? Because chapter 14, verse 1 continues the conversation. Do you realize who Jesus is speaking to when he says, let not your heart be troubled? 
He's talking to the guy who said, you're going to actually say, if I know him, let me go to hell. And that's him. And that's what he says. That's what Peter's going to say. Simon, Peter's going to say. But he looks and goes, hey, don't let your heart be troubled. How in the world could I not let my heart be troubled after he tells me that? The word troubled for words with is the word terasso. And terasso, by the way, means to agitate. The best example we might be able to give is if you've turned on your kettle. There comes a point where you just kind of know it's about to turn off. It makes that... In my case, because I over, always overfill it, I start to water my countertop. That lets me know, okay, it's probably going to turn off soon, which is probably good so I don't electrocute myself and anyone near me. When it starts to do that, it is terasso. It is agitated. And this is where his heart would be, to be unstill, to be stirred up, to be disquieted. And he looks at this man who he just said, you are going to fail me hard. And he looks and goes, but don't freak out over it. And my first thought is, how in the world would I not freak out over this? But he doesn't stop there. He says, look at Believe in God. Now, it's important for what it's worth, the word into, or the word in. You believe in God? Because we've, I think the enemy loves to rewrite our, our dictionary. He's like, go ahead and use your phrases, but then let me rewrite what they mean, because then they're not going to mean the same thing anyways. We're talking about believing in. And they'll ask, do you believe in Santa Claus? Do you believe in the tooth fairy? And in essence, what you're saying is, do you believe that person exists? And then they ask, do you believe in God? And you're saying that, the same thing, but the problem is believe. Episteuho literally means to exercise your trust, but the word in is ice in, the, in the Greek. In Greek, that means into, into. You exercise your trust into someone. If I were to say I believe in Jaden, it would be silly for me to think that what I'm saying is I, I acknowledge that he exists. What I'm saying is I'm openly declaring that I've put trust in him, in his character, in his ability. That's what it would mean in such a case. And that's when we say, do you believe in God or do you believe in Jesus? That's what he's saying. He's not saying, acknowledge I exist. Hello, I've been in front of you for three and a half years. I'm leaving. Acknowledge I exist, everyone. He's saying, I need you to take that trust that I've been implanting in you, that I'm fortifying you with, and I need you to put that into me even if you can't see me. I need you to trust me like that. You say that you claim that you trust in the Father. Well, I need you to trust me that way. That's what he's saying. But I remind you who he's speaking to. He's speaking to Simon Peter. Look, you're going to fall, and you're going to fall hard tonight. According to Scripture, this isn't the first time he's told him this, by the way. We can go all the way back to where Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, to, to Simon Peter, and says, you're not conscious of the things of, man, of God, but you're not conscious of the things of men. Interesting. People say the devil tried to keep him from going to the cross. It appears to me that the devil, the devil thought he won him, sorry, when Jesus was at the cross. I think that it was clear is that the devil didn't want Jesus at the cross or he wouldn't have offered him all the kingdoms of the world in his temptation back at the beginning. But he won. Because when Simon Peter says, you will never go to the cross, Jesus goes, that's the way man thinks, but not the way God thinks, Simon. Now look at let me throw a couple of things at you to consider. And here's the first of them. If Jesus were to tell you, not everything you're going to do to blow it from this point on, but let's just say the next big nasty, whatever that big nasty is. 
And then Jesus goes, but don't freak out over it. It's fairly likely it will not be as bad as what Simon Peter did here. Let's just be honest. Chances are, although it's fair to say there are going to be times where every one of us will be tempted to, to way, way turn down the Christian thing in front of someone because of the fear of what that might do to someone. Fear of how it will affect a relationship. Fear of how it might get you or not get you a job. Fear of whether that person will stop thinking you're cute the moment they realize that you're that psycho-Christian person. Still doing the similar thing. And this is no license for that. But I'd like you to consider the first thing is, is that when Jesus entered into your relationship, he actually knew what was going to happen. You didn't. This is the great thing about getting into a relationship with someone who knows everything about you. Is that when he enters into the relationship, there's nothing to surprise him later that will make him go, oh, forget it, deal's off. Now, there's the danger with us and everyone else. Let's be honest. The, the traditional term I've used is we put our trophies in the front window. And the idea is you meet somebody and you've kind of got a docket of things that are kind of your cool things. And you try to sort out, you suss out the person in front of you to see which of those are going to be most beneficial. They're going to get you somewhere. So Tunde turns on his cool, and the next thing you know, he's kind of like somebody out of Black Panther. You know, Jaden's going to be kind of, his, kind of the suave, but silent type. We all have our things. More than likely, probably Dennis will bust a couple jokes because he's hilarious and he's a funny and very witty young man. And at that point, Lois will be sussing out with her mother whether it is that, that beautiful sing-songy Irish thing plays well. No, it does. And off she goes. And everything's almost a limerick by the time we're done. Because in the end of it all, we have these things that we just kind of know for certain people, let's just be honest, that if we kind of throw it out in the front window, someone's going to want to get in the house. The problem is, is if everything good's in the front window, we don't want them in the house. Because the deeper they go in the house, the, er, the uglier it gets. It's kind of like all the goods have been shown up front. And so what happens, it's like, please know me less than six millimeters. Because beyond those six millimeters, what you're going to find isn't as pretty as the stuff I've really worked on to put in the front window. And that's where we get to this point where we realize people kind of love us when they actually get beyond those six millimeters and they go, oh, wow, you're really not all that. But that's okay. But somewhere down the line, we've just kind of hoped that we've sort of hooked them enough in those first six millimeters that now we're just kind of enough of a habit that they won't run quickly if they do see those things. And maybe it's like, well, yeah, but at least we have this history now, or at least we have, and that's kind of the way it works. So imagine, if you will, in the beginning of it all, it's like, you know, the guy's super suave, and he's super kind, and he's super nice, and he's a gentleman, and it just seems like everybody kind of swoons when he walks in the room. But sooner or later, you find out that he's pretty much not that at all. But by that point, you kind of go, but, and then you have this, like, this, you lean, oh, but those, those first two weeks, Wow, those first two weeks. And you lean on that. But then you run into Jesus, and he knows all of that. Jesus actually, pardon me for saying, has actually already surmised the entire house before he ever chose to get in a relationship with you. So there's nothing to surprise him with. And the strange part is he still wanted you anyways, and even to go stranger than that, he actually thinks you're the most precious thing in the universe with all of those warts and all of those flaws and all of those 
all of the poo that you've flung on yourself through all of these choices you've made. And I'm not trying to be crude. It just comes natural. But it's like you look at some of these things and you realize, I mean, there are times where I feel like I'm the human fart. My attitude, the way I am, I just feel like it's just going to stink up a room when I'm in it. And it's like, Jesus, like I already know all of that about you. And though I know all of that about you, I love you anyways. It says when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, he died for us. When we were enemies in our minds and hearts to God, and worse yet, we were walking according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience, and were by nature children of wrath, which means we were children of wrath by nature. We were dead, but we were walking around. So we were zombie children of wrath that were God's enemies, that in essence were running by the remote control and influence of the enemy. And God, the Father, looked at that and he goes, I'll adopt that one. I want to make it, and you look at all that and you realize, what, I mean, could you imagine if you get to the point where you're like, look at, before we even get in a relationship, let me just let you know, blah, and then you sort of verbally barf on someone, and it's like, these are all the things that I am, because I'm really tired of hiding these things now, and this is just who I am, and this is what you're dealing with, and Jesus goes, I know all of that, and I still want you anyways, I already know all of that, and then you're like, well, God bless you, and I mean that word for word, uh, and we say, well, how could you love me? Because let's face it, when somebody else we think loves us, there has to be something intrinsically lovable within us that's going to basically put on the end of the hook that they'd bite into. Jesus goes, I love you because I'm love. And because I'm love, instead of you being lovable, he never has to change his mind because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. There's nothing about him that's ever going to discover something about you and change his mind. And he's looking at Simon Peter. Could you imagine resolving that in your head? That the reason God loves you isn't because you're so darn lovable, but rather because he's love. And therefore, you'll never have to perform to win it. And you know this, if you fight to get it, you have to fight to keep it. You'll never have to put on the makeup, whatever that looks like, in whatever way you are, to try to win someone. Because let's face it, if you win him with makeup, you've got to keep it on. And I look at Jesus and he looks at Simon Peter. And I could see myself in Simon Peter and, and I could see him as he looks and he goes, you know what? Stop letting your heart be so freaked out over it because I need you to trust me. And this is the major separation between Simon Peter and Judas Iscariot. Was not, I mean, let's face it, Judas never denied he knew Jesus. Judas flat out openly acknowledged that he knew Jesus and led an army of people to arrest Jesus. Simon Peter denied that he knew him on three occasions. And according to the Gospel of Mark, the rooster actually crows twice, which means he gets a warning shot before he gets it between the eyes with this. And then somehow and all that he says, and if I know this guy, may I rot in hell? That's what he's saying. And yet in all of that, the difference cannot be just that one of them fell and the other didn't. The difference is what they did with their sin. Judas would take his sin upon himself. But, but Peter, on the other hand, would take that sin because Jesus says here, you need to trust me. I know you're going to fall and I need you to trust me. Jesus has already told him, Simon, Simon. I think it's interesting that's the term he uses there. Satan has asked for you. First of all, that should freak you out because the only time I've ever heard God and Satan getting into a conversation and a name comes up is Job. That's a really bad place to start. He's like, wait a minute, you guys were in a conversation and my name came up? Mm. But he goes, look at Satan has asked for you that he may sift you like wheat. 
Any of you think that would be a fun experience? Here's my favorite part. Jesus says, but I've prayed for you. My first thought is, and? Don't you want him to say, but I said, no way are you getting at this guy, homie. You know, think about what he could have said. He's like, no, I've prayed for you. And when you are restored, strengthen your brothers. He says, Simon, you are going to fall hard. But you're going to come back. And when you do, I've got a great ministry for you. Pardon me for saying it this way, but as if Jesus were to say, Peter, you're really no use to me till you're broken. But when you are, you're going to have a great ministry. Well, we better pick it up. Now you see why it's only six verses and we've got one in. Don't let your heart be troubled. Now look at. Do you know what the enemy loves to do? Take a failure and build your house there. Live there. Let it define you. Put that scarlet letter on your chest and walk around with it for the rest of your life. You know, all condemnation is, is conviction that is intended to lead you away from God. The Holy Spirit convicts to bring you to him. The enemy tries to throw that same at you. In other words, they both say, this is wrong. It's amazing how the enemy will lie about how, saying how little it is beforehand and then how much bigger it is afterwards. And Jesus is like, I've paid for that. You need to come back and get it right with me. Don't let your heart be troubled. Simon, Peter, you believe in God. I know you do. Now I need you to trust me. Because in my Father's house are many money. Money means dwellings. It comes from the word many, which means to remain. Of course, we can't see them. Because we can't see them, my natural intention is, show me the money. Anyways, if it weren't so, I would have told you. Now stop there for a moment. It's important to note this. Because what he says next all plays out on the wedding metaphor when he says, I go to prepare a place for you. Now that doesn't mean that much to us, but let me kind of play it out for a moment. And I was kind of looking around the room and this could be, you know, I can't really, I can do it. Thank you. What's the best? 2,000 years ago, there was a man, Denisius, who, although, let's be honest, it's a Latin name, that's a dangerous thing, but just the same. We could say Denis Yahoo. And he, uh, his family has found great fancy. They know one of the responsibilities of the father is going to take that son and he wants to have a responsible, good wife. Good children. So what happens is the father does the deal. Traditionally, 2,000 years ago, Dennis didn't work it out. Dennis, yeah, does not work it out. The father actually sends someone called a shoshbanin. A shoshbanin is the friend of the bridegroom. He's the deal maker. This is way before Yentols, by the way, where you went and said, let me tell you why. Okay, and they go and they see this gal, if you will. And this, Fanarachel, and from Rachel, they look and they see her and they're like, this would be the perfect young lady. She's a woman of honor. She's a woman of caring. She's a woman that has high respect among the, uh, the, the world. And so with that, with the community. So what happens is the Shosh Benin, who is sent by the father, goes to speak to the guardian of Rachel. How much? How much for the girl? Now, there are three different ways in which they could go. One is, if the family were actually in a place of dishonor, 
then, then Tiahu could actually help redeem that family out of that dishonor, and that would be payment. The second is if they owed a tremendous amount of money, he could actually pay the debt. But what if Dennis didn't have any money? He could work it off. And by the time that Jesus was there, the amount of time that you would spend was half that from the original agreement between Yaakov and Lavin, which was seven years, which makes it three and a half. So he could work for three and a half years, or he could redeem her out of her debt. We see that, for instance, in the book of Ruth. Or he could redeem them back to honor. Don't you find it interesting when Jesus does something, he does it all the way? Do you realize Jesus did all three? You realize how long was his public ministry? Three and a half years. He paid for his bride all three. Redeemed the debt, redeemed the dishonor, and also worked it off. Don't you find that interesting? Are you with me so far? So, they have this agreement now. The deal's been made. At this point, the deal's been between the Shoshbanim, the friend of the bridegroom. By the way, does anyone call himself a friend of the bridegroom in the New Testament? John the Baptist. Interestingly enough, he's making the deal. And with that, then, now comes the moment of reckoning. So comes the table. And for the first time ever, Dennis is alone with Fanny. And he stands at the table. Fanny is brought in. Guess who brings her in? The Shoshbanim. But by the way, who's the greatest friend of the bridegroom? The Holy Spirit. That's his ministry. Prodding the bride to the table. And at the table, there is a moment, and it's a crisis moment, and Fanny's in that crisis now. In between them is a cup, just a cup. And that cup is wine, supposed to symbolize joy. And when she comes there, it's the first time she's alone with him, and he takes that cup, and he offers his pleasure, his protection, his provision to her. If she drinks of that cup... She's agreed to his terms. In this case, Fanny has. Now, tell me it's a man's world. For the next season, roughly a year, she goes and has a season of beautification. Do you know where that comes from, by the way? The book of Esther. What are you going to say? What's that? Yeah. Yeah, of beautification. She has the season of beautification. In essence, what it is, is it's like one year trip to the spa. She's, her hair is done, her skin is done in oils, and she is surrounded by women who are virgins. Why? Because they're the women who would be most excited about a wedding, in some cases. They're like, lucky, jealous, jelly. And with that, she is guarded because the one thing she is responsible to do is to guard her honor for that year. And they know if they're going to doll her up, she's going to be more attractive or more, in, more desired by other people. So in essence, she's got an entourage of bodyguards around her to keep anyone else from getting to her for that year. But guess what he does? He goes to build a house. Yeah, yeah, man's world. So she's going and she's getting pampered. It's Manny Petties every day. It's facials, the whole bit. Meanwhile, he's going to his father's estate and on his father's estate, he puts a stake in the ground. And on that stake in the ground, there is a titlas, a title that says the future home of the Parsleys. That's their surname, by the way. Dennis, Dennis Yahu and Fenerachel. And for that year, he is building. Now, or however long, but likely that's roughly the period of time. 
during that particular period of time, he is building, imagine, it's like he's putting a room and he's like, oh, she'll love this. This is where the morning light hits as it comes in. Oh, let's build this and let's put these windows in there. She'll love this. And over here, this will be the place where food is cooked. And as if this is the place where food is cooked, let's let it fill the house. I bet she's a great cook. And, you know, and he's like, in other words, the whole year, however long it is that he's away from her, he's thinking of her the whole time. He has never forgotten about her. As a matter of fact, with every swing of a hammer or with every laying of a brick or with every planning within the architects or whatever zoning he's having to get, everything that he's doing was with her in mind. Are you following me on this? So how do I know when he comes back to get her? Well, that's actually quite simple when he's done. Now, if he's kind of like not that excited about the arrangement, it may be that it's like, well, and he could set a, he could set a time. Year and a half, not a problem. But if he's excited about her, the moment he's done, he's going. Does that make sense? Now, once he does, things change. So, as he returns to the village, as he, or where to, to, the, to the village uh, center, to the gates, where the transactions are made, and we even know that from the book of Ruth, he goes, and they have two guys with him. One guy is the trumpet blower that blows the shofar. When the shofar is blown, what that does is it assembles people. It wakes people up and goes, hey, this is something important. We need to be awake for it. And then there's a guy that's a herald, a harbinger. And he's the guy that says why you blew that horn in the first place. Traditionally, they're not the same person because not all the time the guy with the loudest voice is the guy that's the greatest trumpet player. So, he blows the trumpet and you know the, the shofar, the horn, and people are gathered together. And with that, then someone says, the wedding of Dennis and Fanny. And people start to gather. The first group that gathers are the elders of the community. Do you know why the elders? Because they're the ones that could actually validate the wedding that it's legitimate. They've known around. They've known whether these two families are a battle or, even more dangerously, whether they're related. They're the people who are able to do that. And what they do is they come out. If it were the middle of the night, why would it be the middle of the night? Because Dennis really wants his bride. They come out with torches. Does that make sense? They're the elders, and they come, and they, what they do is they form a pathway, in other words, kind of like a lit pathway, between where he is and her house. But Dennis isn't walking. Dennis is riding in a litter. Do you know what a litter is? It was the limo of the day. That's the thing that kings ride on, you know, on the shoulders. So here it is, if you will, six guys are carrying this thing with Dennis on it. That better be six good guys, let me tell you what, right? Because it ain't going to be just Dennis here in a moment. And what Dennis does... Is he t- they go and they carry him. So it would be really nice to make the path easy, but also to make it, you don't want him wandering around carrying someone like Dennis. So as they get there, they get to the house. And when they get to the house, Fanny doesn't answer the door. Their father does. And what he does is he takes this cord of responsibility, this cord of government, and he lays it upon Dennis. And what he's saying is, she's your responsibility now. He set a standard in regards to the spiritual, the physical, and in the emotional. He was a stable man. He had given her this. He's provided for. He had given, in other words, he offered his provision, his protection, and his pleasure. Not in any weird way as a father would his kids. And with that, he says, I give you, I respond to the fact, I'm confident you can, conter, you can continue on that standard. That to this day is still used at a wedding when you hear someone say, who gives this bride away? Traditionally, the whole idea of that is when the father says, her mother and I do, what we're saying is we confidently grant this because we're confident in that. Both of my girls know that, by the way. By the way, it's interesting because Isaiah, Yeshayahu, actually uses that when it says, for unto us a son is given, for unto us a child is born, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and the court of government shall be upon him. 
It's a wedding metaphor. After all of that, are you all with me so far? Then he goes, and now in front of all of the crowd, he takes his bride and he pulls her into his litter, pulls her up into where they are. Imagine the guys that have to carry them now, because what he's saying is, this is my girl. And I want everyone to know, this is my girl. And they take them to the chuppah, and that's another story. We'll, we'll build that on another time. But hear me on this. Are you with me so far? Listen to this text from First Thessalonians in regards to the rapture. Yeah, I know I was going to bring it up. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God. Do you see it? That's the horn blower. That's the guy. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Who's that? It's the elders. And after that, we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds. And therefore, we will be with the Lord forever. Who is that? That's the bride. He was therefore encourage each other with these words. Does that, do those words encourage you? Because they way encourage me. Now, Jesus says here, I'm going and I'm preparing a place for you. Could we have connected those dots back then? We could have. Wait a minute, you're going? And then he says, but if I go and prepare a place for you. First he said, remember, on my father's house are many mansions or many places to dwell. In other words, there is room. And I'm going to go build a place on my father's place. Husbands do that. Betrothed people do this. He says, I'm going to do that. But if I go to do that, I'm going to come back and receive you to myself. Do you see the promise in that? Now it tells us, by the way, that no one knows the day or the hour when the Lord's to come back. could be at midnight. But we do know this. Why could it be any time? Because when he's done, he's coming. He's not waiting a breath. I think he's really excited about getting his girl. So listen. And if I go prepare a place for you again, I will receive you to myself. And let me build on this last thing, and we've got to close this. But the word receive here. Try this word, if you will. Paralambano. Try paralambano. We're speaking Greek now. So paralambano. If you speak Greek properly, you sound like you've just shot an automatic weapon. Paralambano. Now try this word. Katalambano. Lambano means to take, to grab, to hold. Para means beside. Kata means according to. For instance, when we read the Greek definitions or the, the titles, if you will, for the Gospels, it's like kata markon, Gospel according to Mark. The term katalambano is a wrestling term. You're grabbing somebody according to you. It's a wrestling term where two guys are trying to get an arm on each other and they're trying to get a takedown to the idea and they just, once they get them in something, they're going to, you know. Well, that's the term that is used in John chapter 1, verse 5 when it says that light is coming to the world but the darkness could not comprehend it or understand it. It literally means that the darkness couldn't get a hand on it. When light comes, light is always the dominant feature. When light comes, darkness flees. There's nothing it can do with it. In other words, the way I would say it, having fought competitively, is that Light came into the world and darkness couldn't land a punch. That's katalambano. It is strong. It is forceful. But the idea, you're grabbing someone and you're taking them down. But paralambano is romantic. Lambano, I remind you, means take. 
The difference is this, between taking somebody down, right? Where you're grabbing them, and you're throwing them down, like that. It's very convenient. Or you're just coming and you're pulling somebody to you. This is my wife, just so you all know. And now, the difference is huge. And that's the term Jesus uses. To be honest, I think he could have used either. They just would have had infinitely different meanings. If he said the first one, the idea would be to rescue us, because it's also what's a word that's used when you're rescuing someone who's drowning, for instance. Because you have to pull them. There's nothing romantic about it, per se, but you're pulling them to rescue them. But when Jesus says, when I come back, I am just going to embrace you to myself. That's what he's saying here. Is this the God you serve? Because he's the one I do, by the way. And let me tell you why. That where I am, you may be also. My whole purpose for coming and wrapping my arms around you isn't because I just wanted you not to go to hell. It's because I've been building a place that we're going to spend the rest of eternity together. And I just can't wait to wrap you in my arms and take you there. You see, the wedding is one thing. But the marriage is really the, the thing. I mean, the wedding, I mean, there's nothing else in your life that you spend more time preparing to get the item. And sometimes people get so caught up in the wedding, they have completely no preparation for the actual marriage. The wedding publicly announces you two are together, but the marriage intertwines you. To laugh and dream and fall asleep holding each other and to wake up together in morning's embrace, to feel the peace of being in each other's arms, sipping the same sunset, rack up libraries of beautiful memories and stare in the eyes of someone who stares back, who's been able to do so when they were brighter and more vigorous in hope and still at peace and staring into yours while the chaos of the world disappears. But there are wayside frauds and shallow promises and weeds of life's diaries, alarms that choke out love life. But one day, all of those hints are completely in their absolute form when you stare into the face of Jesus. And the whole world could disappear in his arms and that's totally fine. Jesus says, I'm going, and I know you can't find me yet, and you won't see me like you do, but I need you to trust me, Peter. I'm going, but I'm coming back. You see, I wouldn't go unless I was planning on coming back, and I wouldn't go without a plan, and I wouldn't go without leaving someone to take care of you while I'm gone. Now, with that in mind, let me say this, and we've got to get to this last point so we can close this up. The whole point Jesus is going to make by the time we're done with chapter 14. And chapters 14 through 17 are an intimate, exclusive text that only John gives us. That includes a prayer that we only get in John 17 and this teaching in 14 through 16. And Jesus is looking at his guys in the context, again, I remind you, I'm leaving, but I'm coming back. Is that you need to know this. If you've seen the Father, you've seen me, because if the Father's in me, then he must be with me. And if the Father's with me, and I'm before you, then he's with you. What's important is Jesus is going to say that ultimately in chapter 14, he's going to give you his Holy Spirit to dwell inside of you because if Jesus is in you, then he's with you. I'm not leaving you. I'm sending to you 
another helper to live inside of you so that you never have to be forsaken. We'll get to that. But with that, Thomas is going to ask. Thomas speaks four times in Scripture. None of them, are, well, one of the four are actually flattering. The other three really show a guy that's just basically really trying to figure it out. I mean, you know, we give him a lot of grief, but truth be told, I think if we were all there, we'd get it. When Jesus says we're going to go back down to Jerusalem and the last time they tried to kill him, he's like, let's go with that. We would die with him. I get it. Here, how in the world do we do this? Thomas will be the one, of course, he says, unless I can see the handprints in his hands and I can put my finger in the print in his side, I'm not going to believe. And of course, Jesus does show him. And Thomas's response tells us that he's an honest critic, but not a cynic. And that is my Lord and my God. He really does believe. That's what it took. And Jesus met him there. But Jesus says, I'm leaving, man. But I'm coming back. And Thomas says, wait a minute, wait a minute. Because he says, the way you know, where I go, you know, the way you know. And Thomas says, Lord, I have no idea where you're going. And because I have no idea, how in the world am I going to get there? Hear me on this last thing and we'll pray. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's the answer to that. You want to know the way? I'm the way. Now listen, Jesus says, I'm going, but I'm coming back and I'm going to pull you into me. So you don't even need to know where you're going because as long as your eyes are on me, you're there. If I were to say, I'm going to pick you up and take you to my favorite restaurant, and I was driving. You're like, well, how do I get there? It doesn't matter. I'm picking you up. Trust me. Get in the car. Trust me. We're going to get there. Well, how do, we, how do you get there? I'm the way to get there. He says, I'm the way. The way tells me, by the way, everything in regards to my future. How do I get to this place that you're going to be making for me that we could spend eternity? He goes, I'm that way. I'm the one who's making it, not you. I'm the one who's coming for you. You're not coming to me. I'm the one who's going to receive you to myself. You're not jumping. Rapture is not who can jump the highest. I'm going to pull you to me. And then I'm going to take you back. What part of this relies on you? The choice of whether you want it or not. But please hear me in this. Do you realize that in every other religion, you're the way? I search out, I inculcate, I find the truths, I ascribe through understanding and discipline and austerity how to incorporate those into my life. In essence, I make it happen. And in the end of it all, if I make it happen good enough, then maybe something will be favorable as a judgment in my behalf. I fight, I fast, I forsake, I fortify my flesh to boost the scoreboard of my accomplishments for all these good works and hopes that it will be enough to favor me. I'm the way, but not in Scripture. Jesus, with Jesus, I forfeited the rotted me and trade up to a new life. And I feast and am filled. And through him I forgive. In all, I respond to him, not call him. I can't make him come. can't make him take me. I can't make him receive me. He already wants that. I didn't have to. I respond to that. It's Jesus' work. I don't make it happen. He does. In other words, every other religion is self-righteous and we are Jesus-righteous. Jesus settled that in regards to all the means of the future. The only thing left is the present. And he says, I'm not just the way. Let me tell you about now. I'm the truth and I'm the life. Look at Jesus said, I go to the Father 
There he says, no one comes to the Father. Where are we going? To the Father. We already know where he is because he taught us when we taught us to pray. He's in heaven. Holy is his name. Again, I'm not just the way. Until then, as you wait for me, know that I'm the truth. He was from there. He's going back there. He promises to come back for me. In the meantime, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, John 1.17. And it tells us that Jesus says, if you're my disciples, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. That's John 8.32. He tells us that though we've sought the scriptures or to the religious leaders, they are the ones that testify of him. And that in him, and I love this verse in Colossians 2.3, that in Jesus are hidden all, all, all means all, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. But all the rubbish of knowledge can be found in other places, if you really want. In my house, you know, we talk about those things that if you were in a fire, what would be the first thing, thing, first three things that you would grab that weren't your family? Because let's face it, you better just remove that so you don't get yourself in any trouble. But it's like, so what would be the first things you grab? But do you ever say, what would be the last three things you would grab? What are the, the, the first three things you would think of and you're like, oh, thank God for the fire? Were they things you brought into the house? Did you think they were awesome when you brought them in? And now you're like, you know, it's like when we moved into the new place that we live in, you know, that we've been in for a year, we inherited some furniture, including this nasty old Ikea taped up table. And we're like, hey, at least it was a table. And as long as we didn't move it, we could eat on it. But by God's grace, my next door neighbor just kind of went, hey, I've got a couple like really old Victorian. The moment you say Victorian and it isn't falling apart, my wife's just going to perk up. And he's like, yeah, I've got this old Victorian table and it's just, are you interested? And then I'm like, yeah. But now what we had to do is I had to assemble this, this nasty old tape of table. And, uh, and, you know, it's like sellotape just to make it better. And it's like sitting on the wall downstairs in a spare room forever. Going, now what do we do with this thing? It's just there. You've seen it several times because you've had to put stuff next to it. And I'm like, Lord, it would be nice to see this thing gone. And if someone were to break in your house and they stole that, you would actually take them out to lunch. We didn't bring that into the house. We just inherited that. By God's grace, I had to call sort of a taxi to go and drop off some stuff at a charity. We found a Christian one because that's what we want to give our stuff to. And with that, there was room. And I'm like, hey, can I put a table in there? You can imagine the look on this guy's face. It's like a table? I'm like, don't worry. It's already torn down. And then he picked it up and he goes, oh, this is that cheap, heavy stuff. I'm like, yeah, I didn't want to say that, but yes. And in the end of it, I was like, I felt... I mean, as much as you're happy to give stuff to a charity, this was the one thing I was just like, thank you, God, for getting it out of my house. Now, the reason I say that is that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Jesus because he's the truth. But all the nastiness of wisdom and knowledge are going to be found in the world. And you could drag that stuff into the house of your head, in the house of your heart, but ultimately, in the end of it all, you should be thankful when Jesus does and becomes the bin man. Wouldn't it be crazy if when there was a fire, the first thing you did is grab the bag in your bin? And went, oh, you don't understand those coffee grounds. I'm going to miss those. Yeah, then you're weird. No. And this is how it ends. Listen, guys, I'm leaving, but I'm coming back for you. So stop focusing on getting there. But focusing on the, focus on the fact that you know that you belong there. And you belong there because of me. Because I chose you because I love you and I want you. And you're never going to change my mind on that. Know that. And I'm coming for you. You don't know when, 
But do you really think that the early church people are like, that whole rapture idea, that was a whole new idea. The church didn't celebrate that for many years. And they certainly didn't have that concept back in the early church. That's really interesting because when Paul writes to the Thessalonians, the first one of the things he says is, look, I don't want you guys to be troubled. If some have troubled you saying that the resurrection has already happened. In that case, it was the resurrection of the just and the unjust. They believed that the Lord was coming for him. And somebody actually lied to him and told him he already came and he missed him. They believed that the rapture was coming because they, and they obviously believed it was in their time because somebody said it already happened and they freaked out over it. What if it were today? Are you his? Have you accepted the gift of Jesus? Because he's not slack, as some count slackness, but he's long-suffering, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Let me ask you, if Jesus came 10 years ago, would you have gone? Would you have, could you say you've accepted the gift of Jesus more than 10 years ago? If Jesus came five years ago, would you have gone? Aren't you thankful he's waited? Well, what if you're the last person and you haven't made up your mind yet? Make up your mind. Say yes to Jesus. I'm ready to go home. But that's the choice you need to make. Don't make it for me. Make it for you because someone's in love with you and this unrequited love is a terrible story. Would you pray with me, please? Oh, Lord Jesus, there's so much to develop in just so little time about what it means for you to be the life, and perhaps we'll look at that next week, what it means to really come to the Father through you. But Lord, I know this much. You're the one who does the work. You've always been the one to do the work. You're the initiator. We're the responder. And I thank you for that. I thank you, Lord, for the fact that you built this beautiful marriage ceremony and the whole process to help us understand your love for us and your wanting us. And I thank you, Lord, for your desire for us with nothing that surprises you. I thank you, Lord, that you know all my nastiness. I don't, and you do. And it's never scared you away. It's never surprised you. Would you please today bring us to this place, Lord, where we could celebrate you as someone so dearly loved. Someone who celebrates a God who just wants them because he's love. And we're never going to get that elsewhere. So Lord, keep us from running to stupid places that we don't belong. Looking for something only you can give. And I pray today, Lord, that our decisions would be simple. Today, Lord, that we would accept the gift of your, of your Son, Father. And that today we would celebrate that gift. While heads are bowed and eyes are closed, if you've not accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, you could fool me, you could play the game, but that doesn't mean you have. But today you recognize that if the Lord were to come back, you're not confident that He would, you would be on the roll, so to speak. Well, today you can be sure. It tells us if we're willing to confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead, we'll be saved. Well, that's the choice you've got to make. And if that's you, just pray this prayer with me right now. And maybe you're in that place where you recognize you've been so caught up in the weeds of this world around you that you've forgotten about this beautiful romance with the eternal God who loves you. And today you just want to get back to that. 
Pray this prayer with me. God, I am a sinner. And as I'm a sinner, I cry out to you because you want me anyways. And that really does amaze me. But in your wanting me, Lord, there is a bill to be paid and you in your love for me have paid that price. And as you paid that price, Jesus died on the cross. He sent your only begotten Son to die on the cross for me. And when He died on the cross, my bill was paid. Just like Scripture promised after being buried on the third day, He rose again to offer me a new life, to leave that old, nasty, guilty self buried and to raise up a new one, no longer under the eternal bondage of my guilt, but now set free to serve and to celebrate. And so I just say yes, Jesus. I say yes to your gift. I say yes to your offer of paying my bill. But I say yes, Father, to your adoption. And in that I say, have me now. Let me be the object of your love in a practical way, even as you've done this, in a perfect way to pay for me. Make my life new and may I follow you in that as I hand myself to you. In Jesus' name. And if you agree with that prayer, I ask you to say, Amen. Lord, you've heard our prayers today. May we walk out of here different. As we sing one last song, and I just pray that it would be meaningful. And God, in that I pray that today our hearts would be reignited for your return. Oh Lord, please, come quickly in Jesus' name. In your name, Jesus. Amen.